Welcome back to Three Point Firefighter, the podcast where I have a conversation with firefighters from all around the country on all things fire service related, especially those three things that are the cornerstone of any good firefighter, pride, training, and physical fitness. Today's guest is Aaron Fields from the Seattle Fire Department. Aaron is the creator of the Nozzle Forward program, and this program teaches aggressive fire attack with a focus on hose line management. If you've been in the fire service the past 10 years or so, then you've probably heard about it. My intent today was to talk with Aaron about the Nozzle Forward program, which I did, but the discussion ended up going off in a bunch of different directions. I got a crash course in Aaron Fields, and what I learned in my crash course about Aaron Fields is he is much more complex than just the one program he developed. He is very intelligent. Words matter to this guy. Just try to use the word irregardless around him and you'll see what I'm talking about. In the conversation, he even dropped a quote from Marcus Aurelius and not the dude from the Gladiator movie. Really, Marcus Aurelius. I learned if you meet him in a dark alley and try something you shouldn't, he might just fuck you up. The main thing I learned about speaking with Aaron is he's a true servant of our industry. This guy has a lot to offer on just about any topic in the fire service. I cannot begin to tell you how much I enjoyed talking to him. And with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron Fields. Appreciate you sitting down to spend some time with me. Yeah, my, my, my pleasure. How was your camping trip? Oh, it was great. It was great at the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. It's beautiful. It's absolutely yeah, beautiful. That's it. Good. I just got back from Arizona. I was hoping to do some hiking out there because that place is just incredibly beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 different. Definitely a different uh, ecosystem for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. I got to drive through it, spend a couple of days, but I wanted to like pull over. And just go walking around so nice, especially some of those mountains. Yeah. Um, so I like to start off with just tell me a little bit about your department and where you fit in with the department so people know. Yeah, so I work for Seattle Fire. Um, I had a previous life for about five or six years uh, before I came to Seattle, but I grew up in the city. Um, I actually grew up in a neighborhood where I worked for many years and actually my whole time in seattle i've been within one or two response districts from my parents house uh my father works for the fire department so does my brother um and uh so it kind of was in the house growing up um within the department i work on currently i've worked at basically three places I uh, started at 28s on probation, then went to 33s from 33s, which is just south of 28s. I came back to 28s and worked there for quite a while and then um, re- fairly recently moved up to station 13, which is one station from 28s to the kind of northwest and his battalion headquarters. And in- interestingly enough, was able to take my father's number so every seat in in one of our companies has a number assigned to it so c and then what we call a debit number which is our payback shift that we have to work so there there's you know they're all different and i got the same one that my dad had had for the 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 28 or 9 years he worked there so that's that's been pretty cool and um i've been involved with training 
in my own agency for a while now. You know, in all fairness, early on, it was probably not that well received uh, that, you know, and now it's it seems to be pretty well received. And, and because people have had enough exposure that they're seeing what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And that how has made a big impact. Um, and so on acceptance uh, and then. Are you talking yeah, about nozzle forward? Uh, well, the nozzle forward curriculum. Yeah. In Seattle, it's not called nozzle forward. It's called Seattle fire hose. <laughs> so it's the way that we do things. We have a uh, we've, we implemented large parts of the nozzle forward curriculum, uh, the, but the nozzle forward curriculum isn't designed or laid out to be you shall. It is, these are the tools. These are the, how the tools go together and it's up to each individual fire department to, or person to decide what pieces fit them and what pieces don't. And I think that flexibility and the systematic approach is what has had, uh, is what has led to the, the, the impact that the program has had. Um, but yeah, the, the Seattle fire does effectively nozzle forward curriculum, uh, not wholesale, but, but the vast majority of it. And we have an implementation process that we're, so we're working towards some more. And so I've been involved with training now for uh, on and off on, on guest instructor or down there for a summer to teach some in-service training or whatever. And we've gotten some really good traction and we've made some major changes in our own culture. So for the first time in remembered history, we have firefighters permanently assigned for the duration of a drill school. And I'm, I'm one of them. So traditionally what we've done is had lieutenants and lieutenants do all the, the recruit school uh, training and firefighters would come down and teach a section or whatever. But in this case, we've, we've actually, uh, our, our training chief has, has beat the drum hard enough and pushed hard enough. And she's done, she's, she's fantastic and has made some major changes in our agency, which is, which is cultural growth as well as technical growth. So currently for a few more weeks, I'm assigned to the training division. Uh, I'll go back to the companies after the recruit school, and then I'll come back for the February class. So uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a big, it's a big push. So I'm, I'm doing recruit training right now. And then, managing the tail end of our annual in-service hose training. And we're, we're working on that. So that's my relationship. I'm a, the f- number four, the heel position on engine 13, which means typically the number four is the senior firefighter. So, um, you know, I've got, so that's, that's what I do. So you developed nozzle forward originally, your department adopted it and then it went national basically. No, um, no, I, as far as developed nozzle forward, I I think, you know, with people that haven't had the program, there's a misconception that it's something new when in fact, the reason it it came out is because I had a really bad experience very early on and knowing what I know now, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, it, It was easily solved, but my training previously had been at the 
the Washington State Fire Academy. And there was one thing done. There was only one method of water application done. And there is a place for that method, but there was never any diagnostics put into it. Why are you doing this? When would you do this? And if this doesn't work, what's your next choice? So there was no algorithmic. So for you know, 12 weeks or whatever, I was up there. Every time I did this particular type of application of water, it worked, but it worked because the building doesn't combust because it's a concrete building. There's 400 BTUs of pallets in a corner with no, you know, pocket fuels, which lead to vapor trails uh, that lead to fire spread. And so, I mean, you, you functionally have, you know, fires that are glorified bonfires and and then it becomes a drill school competition. Who can do the fire with the least amount of water? Because in order to determine what your skill level is, it's got to be more and more difficult, which is, which is a training fallacy. And the fire service is rampant with it. And we drill for the drill. We don't drill. So in the fire service, basically, drills come in, one variety. We are going to set up a drill that's going to make it hard to, to be successful. And the success, the drill is actually more designed to fail than it is to win. So if you think about, and we've struggled with this, we have time standards on all of the stuff that we do in Seattle. Well, those time standards are set with a very you know, moderately successful method. But the problem is, is that when your time standard is so tight that in order to make the time, you have to shortcut the drill. So you have to cut out best practice because that doing that takes an extra five, five seconds. And so, but because the drill is fixed, there is no variable, then it becomes a race. When in fact, a firefight is a progression, not a race. And you, know, you don't know that you're at the end until it's done. So there, it isn't a fixed drill, but you're setting in your newest people practices that aren't best practice. They're cutting corners and, and their internal clock is moving too fast. And it's doing so against fires that are unrealistic. They're unrealistic in the volume They're unrealistic in the effects and they're unrealistic in the buildings because we set drills up to be easy for the instructors to reset the drill Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, and, and, and so, you know, what happened to me was I came out and I got, I got a, a full serving of humble pie. I mean, to the point that I probably should have been diabetic and (laughs) before I ever got in, the effects of the pain fire were very close and, and left me in it was six hours of, of worrying that one of the people was that went down in that fire was my father and not. Uh, and so when I got out of that fire and the most senior person on the fire ground who had started before SCBA was the one that bailed me out. So I'm supposed to tell stories because this is the way that we do it in the fire service of, you know, they're like Viking saga. Everybody's a hero. In fact, what happened to me was I got into this space that wasn't that difficult to deal with, but I hadn't been, I hadn't had my 
my color palette filled out. I only knew one color and I was going to apply that color no matter what, because it had worked every time up to that point. So I have a bias, a perspective bias based upon success, but the success was not the fire ground. It was a drill ground. And so I got, I got a little bit burned up, not, not massively and uh, but enough that it hurt and like my scalp peeled off and, and stuff, you know, I was, I, which in hindsight, you know, okay, that's, it's, it's a question of perspective, right? If you're an infant and you fall down and scratch, scratch your knee for the first time, it's the end of the world because nothing's ever been worse. Right. But when you're a 15 year old, you're like almost rip your ear off on, on uh, sticker bushes and you're like, it's okay. It's okay. I'll walk it off. Cause you have a spectrum, a continuum of experience. This isn't as bad as this, but worse than this. That comes from experience. And that's the way it is with everything. So for me, this early fire physically hurt, but emotionally and mentally was traumatizing because when I came out of that fire, I knew that if that captain hadn't caught up with me and said, turn the line on. And then when I went to shut it off, because that's what I've been taught to do, short burst of water, move forward. Right. Uh, I went to turn it off and he said, no, 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 leave it on. And the fire went out amazingly. And we controlled the quote unquote flow path, which is really called a gradient in science, not a flow path. It's a heat, moisture and and, uh, heat and moisture and pressure gradient. And, and, you know, we keep coming up with new slang words in the fire service, which is a whole nother thing. There are actually scientific terms for these phenomena that don't include path or air track, which was the 1896 version of the flow path. Um, tendency of gases to move from high to low. I have no issue with talking about it. I just don't think we should be creating new words for scientific terms. Anyway. Talking specifically about like the UL studies? Yeah, I mean, and I was part of them. And it, I mean, so I'm not saying anything here that I haven't said in a meeting with all those guys. And I like them all. But I, 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 I struggle. I mean, I have a, I mean, they know this ad nauseum, but uh, I have a background in linguistics and cognitive linguistics. After I journeyed in a trade, I put myself through college and then came into the fire service. Um, and so words matter and how you say things matters. Uh, and the semantics are the things that when we're, when we're writing books and we're talking, we have to be cognizant, cognizant of the, the semantics of what we're saying. And the problem with path is it infers on a secondary level, a a stability, a levelness, Mm -hmm. when in fact it's a gradient, right? And so, and if you cool the space, you can change the gradient and the direction of what's going on. So anyway, uh, I came out and after that fire, there's a long way to get to the the creation story, I guess the, uh, (laughs) I came out of the fire and frankly was like, this is bullshit. Uh, So I'd had a competitive sport career where I had guys tell me all kinds of things, but we knew at the end of the day, whether it worked and if it worked, I would adopt it right away because the difference between standing on the podium and not is your preparation. And if somebody comes in and says, I got a new way to throw a single leg and I'm like, really show it to me. And Uh, and it works no matter where I'm at in my career, I'm going to adopt it. 
what happened was is I just spread out and started traveling and taking classes. And I was reading the original Fire Nuggets with, you know, in 2000 with Jeff Shoup and, and Andy Fredericks and, and that, that group of people. And I got tied in with that line because they had the answer. They had the solution for what was the pro- what was my problem. Mm-hmm. And so then I just kept traveling and studying and reading other people's hose books. And, and, and what I was fortunate of is because of my geographic isolation, I was able to practice. And because of my athletic background and the level that I had been coached by, I was able to break things down into components. And I've got about it now, I've got a 25 year history with deep study and application of skill acquisition for psychomotor skills. So all I did was take apart what these other folks were doing, struggled to find some new leverage points that give us greater mechanical advantage, and then break it down into disseminating pieces that can be constructed and deconstructed to advance hand lines and fight fire. And, and, and what it does is it creates algorithms and those algorithms give us a way to practice. They give us a, a, a model for being good. And they also allow us to dissect when it goes poorly and when it goes successfully to isolate those components. So in other words, I took a sport based upon leverage, a whole lifetime of it. I'm still actively involved uh, with leverage. And I took a, a, an athletic, military, military-like approach to dissecting the skills. At no point did have I ever said what I like to do. This is what we do. Right. That's different. Well, and I notice you talk about, you. if you break it down from what I've seen, and, and in all fairness, I have yet to take your class. I do want to take the class. But you break it down into biology and physics. You talk about using the skeleton versus the muscle yep. and, and, and moving the line that way. And I found that really interesting. When I came in the fire service 25 years ago, what changed the fire service, the landscape of the fire service was equipment. So maybe going from a 30 minute bottle to a 60, thermal imaging, making thermal imaging smaller. It was always equipment that changed the fire service. Fast forward now, it's people like you, Dr. Gasway, Jared Sergi, uh, you know, Salka, Goldfeder. It's words and tactics are now changing the way we do our job. So as I go to these different classes, I was just at one a couple weeks ago, getting ready to go one in a week, and it's all, they're all using and embracing nozzle forward. I've never seen anything that firemen agree on, not one, not coffee, not engines, not anything. I have yet to hear one negative thing about your system and how it applies to their department. I mean, that's got to make you feel pretty good that, that something you set forth has gone this big. Was that your plan originally? Or were you just trying to do it locally? No, I was trying not to burn up. And I worked on, I mean, I think this is the other thing. I mean, sometimes some of the guys at the big conferences are like, oh, you're new on the scene. I'm not new. I've been on the job for, I mean, I'm not old, but I've been on the job for 20 years. And I spent the better part of a decade uh, before I ever taught anything, practicing the skills by myself. And I think that's the difference, right? I mean, I don't talk about it. I I do it. I don't have a big scene. I don't have a big Facebook presence. I don't, I, I, I don't believe that you can transmit skills without conduction and conduction requires contact. 
and there is no shortcut. It's work. So, you know, before I ever taught anything, I had spent the better part of a decade refining it. And then I put it, I got asked by some people I'd shown, I'd shared a skill or two with a couple of folks who a week later caught a pretty substantial fire and they put it to work. And the training chief sought me out. This is from another department and said, would you come show whatever you just did? I want to see it. So 11, almost 12 years ago, we taught our first class and I've never done any advertising. I've never done any, um, any marketing. I've never done, you know, anything that's self promotional. If somebody like yourself asked me to do something, I'm happy to do it, but I've intentionally not endorsed the business side of the fire training community. And I just do classes and every class is referred by somebody. And I think, and, and when my phone quits ringing, I'll quit doing classes. And, and so, uh, but what I think it is right is that at some point during the week of practice, you're getting on the mat Mm -hmm. and on Friday, the best wrestler wrestles. And so I think, and I'm not saying there's not other great ways to do things. What I'm saying is, is what I've got is I don't create mimics. I create technicians. So somebody's understanding of a technique and where it fits within their fire department, their demographics is up to them. And I can help them, but they don't have the same demographics. So there's certain skills that they're not going to use as much as others. And because it's a, it's a deconstructed basics of what are we doing? Why are we doing it? When would we do it? And how would we do it? Everything that we teach is taught in that order every time, because that increases uh, acquisition of skills. What, why, when, how? And most fire training ignores, and including people that get really enthusiastic about this particular curriculum and go to, and they start showing stuff. And they're so eager to show the how that they forget to show the when and the why. And the, the, the when and the why are of equal importance to the how. They have to come first. And when that happens, uh, I think that one thing that the reason it's been accepted, because let's be honest, I don't work for the right fire department. I don't work for the cool guy club. I don't work. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the same kind of profile that so many of the people in our industry adopt. Uh, I am me and this is something that I do, but I approach my marriage and my rearing of children and my pursuit of my sport with the same intensity and focus that I do the fire. Fire isn't my life. It's an extension of how I operate. And I think that people respond initially, as I've been told to the honesty Um, The fact that I approach it in a, in a sharing manner, it's not an, it's, we're in this together. And frankly, the refinement of that system that I've been teaching now for almost 12 years, the refinement of that system occurred through 
doing, I, I got to that, to that 10 year study point and then I started sharing stuff. And as I was sharing stuff, I was encountering demographics that were different than my own, which forced me to look at the principle of the matter and not just say, well, you should do it this way. What and do you mean so, by demographics? You're talking about size of the department? Yeah, the size of the department. Generation? Building construction. Uh, you know, you were, in, you were in Arizona. They don't have basements mm-hmm. at all. Right. So their, their region is pretty poor, frankly, initially at sounding the floor because they have a lot of one story on slab. So once you introduce that concept to them, they're like, oh, God, yeah, maybe so. And I'm like, yeah, and you don't practice something for the exception. You choose to not do it. So maybe you should sound the floor always so that when you're on the second floor and it's a working fire, your fine motor skills aren't dropping off and your brain's not dropping off the sound. So every region has its strengths and its weaknesses. There's no, there's no Mecca of, of firefighting. So the demographics of all things, the, the department size, the buildings, all that stuff forced me to, to look at what I was doing and approach it even more than I already was from a principle based approach. And this is what has to happen. This is what we have to get done. This is the methodologies that we can use to get that done. And now let's use that basic skill set to dissect your individual fire problems. And I think that's, I think it's the humility. I also think that for a lot of what I've been told is for a lot of the, the industry, there's a real refreshing aspect to a slightly counterculture approach. Like I don't, um, I don't endorse a company. I mean, I, I've worked on equipment for different companies, but you never see, there's no such thing as a nozzle forward hose package. And though some of the companies have tried it, there is no such thing. So it's not going to be a TFT, Aaron Field, signature series. Not going to be. No, <laughs> it is not going to be. And and uh, I intentionally don't allow companies to use my name because uh, I think all companies make good stuff and bad stuff. I think some companies blur the lines and think that they're going to get away with something. And I think sales, some salespeople are phenomenal and some are interested in the sale and they'll say whatever they have to say. And when it gets back to me, I call them out on it. And it's it's not a... It's not a personal dig. It's a professional standpoint. Right. And I think that, I think that, uh, that people respond to that. And now with all this, I'm not saying by any means that what other people do is wrong. They can do what they want to do. That's the beauty of freedom. But for me, this is where my moral disposition lies. I am a, I am a conduit of fundamental skills that were given to me by my senior people. Uh, I've, and I've added my own personal take to it, but I always cite my sources completely. Um, and I don't pretend to be original. I mean, I've got black and white photos of people that were doing similar things to what I'm doing right. that date back in the twenties and thirties. And that's because the human body is not infinite and fires don't vary. They do the same thing every time. They work through the same stages. The differences are the buildings and how long it takes us to get there. So there's nothing new under the sun. 
Um, it's simply my interpretation of it with my background in, in skill acquisition and using language as an actual tool to build competency. So I think that's, I mean, it does, it's a nice thing to hear that people are responding and, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's pretty cool because one of the guys in my cadre just estimated that we're somewhere in 11 years between 37 and 40,000 firefighters. Yeah. And we're working with several States with implementation of this because we're easily 1001, 1003 compliant. We've, We've got places all over that use our like 300, 350 fire departments that have wholesale adopted it and uh, a bunch of places that have taken pieces of it, which is the whole idea. Um, So, you know, yeah, it's, it is pretty complimentary and it's a little bit overwhelming at times because even though I am extroverted, I I am very much uh, uh, someone that was raised, born and raised in the, in the Northwest. And my ancestors came here because they, didn't really want people around them, you know, going far away. And so, you know, my wife likes to joke that I'm kind of the most extroverted hermit. And, and we refer to, as does my cadre, we refer to it by itself. It is, it is its own thing. And it's a composite of the instructor cadre, but also all the people that have gone through it, everybody's contributing to it. And we're trying to, trying to build a real community. But then when you go to the calendar, it seems like every month you're somewhere. Now, is that you going? Is that your cadre going? How how do you, because it looks like every month you're doing something. Yeah. So cadre development is, um, I think, one of the things that the fire service lacks. I don't think we do it well. Um, I think occasionally it's brilliant and occasionally. and, And so when I watched and went to these classes, and had my own experience in drill schools. Uh, and I had an example of what good coaching looks like. When I, I, when I was playing one of my sports, I was coached by some of the better coaches in the world while I was living overseas. And, and their approach was, they were the impetus. They gave me their bibliography when I was getting ready to go home. They, they taught me through direct conversation and just going through practice, how you organize a practice and a, and a preparation on a long-term, we are preparing for this skill progressions and also attitudes and approaches. So of everything that the nozzle forward has done, the thing that I am the most, I take the most pride in is the people that have become instructors with us. Uh, it, it's a long, arduous process. There is a, we have 18 instructors from all around the country and they all have different personalities and they, uh, the beauty of it is everybody gets along. And it's because the way that I decided to uh, organize it was the way that I had kind of had exampled for me before that I came into the fire service. So we have continual ongoing conversations. Our methods are under constant critical and technical evaluation um, that we get together. We have instructor get togethers where everybody that can shows up and they bring their families and we spend several days and we go through every fiber of the program. And we talk about 
is there better ways to accomplish this? The skill sets are set, but the way that we coach them is under constant reflection. And we're constantly evaluating. I take notes, as do most of the instructors, on every class we do. So I have a whole library of notes on on different regions, strengths and weaknesses, um, on on uh, how they load their hose, on what made sense to them because of their geographic language. And then, you know, we keep track of, like, hey, this drill went really well. And if we see that show up several times, then we're going to evaluate in our notes, we're going to evaluate what made that drill better in this version than the previous version. So there's this constant dialogue. And so the cool thing is, is with our 18 of us, um, and then we have a bullpen, which are people that have been through the class somewhere between nine and 20 times. And we've gotten to know them and we've gotten to understand them as people. They've started to be show up and we pull them aside and say, Hey, if you're interested in this bullpen, this is where we develop our cadre. And so we keep that bullpen. So if I'm doing a class that's right in the middle and we need another person, but maybe they don't have the budget, then they'll cover the expenses of one of our bullpen member and they'll come out and they'll help us. And so we get to work with them and they get to work with all the different instructors to make sure that there is no like pocket of friendliness. Everyone is intermixed. And then, and then we bring them on and, we bring people on not only because of their technical ability, we also bring them on because of their character and, and, and who they are and how they respond to critique and how they respond to making a mistake in front of people. And do they have a sense of humor? And you mentioned that. Um, when I started in the fire service, all the bios were, you know, every IFSAC certification and, and every, you know, time that they've, you know, it was all about kind of in my, to me, to my cultural backdrop, it was a lot of chest pounding. And so, and I have this ironic kind of cynical sense of humor. And so I thought, let's make bios that are totally tongue in cheek, that are just for fun. And uh, because humor is a large part of the fire service, though we don't, uh, we don't portray it. And so, yeah, we've got a bunch of bios that have been written and they're being edited for the other, the other group of people. Cause it's a joint thing. We'll, we'll take little things of their character and we'll send it out to everybody and then they'll get to see their bio. Um, so yeah, it's, they're meant to be fun and it's amazing early on. There was a lot of negative reaction to it. I mean, a lot of, Oh man, there were a lot of chief officers I mean, I had more than a handful of conversations with chief officers that are like, we'd like to bring you in, but it seems flippant. And like, it, you, it doesn't seem like you're taking it seriously. And I guess that's kind of the, the point. If, if you say you're not going to judge a book by its cover, just because I'm wearing flip-flops in a classroom doesn't mean I'm not serious it means that I'm wearing flip-flops because each of those classes is two days minimum. So you can do the math. That's 80 days plus my normal shifts in boots. I don't have back problems because I'm barefoot when I'm not in boots, you know? So people, they, they mistake this, this, this pomp and ceremony for professionalism. And there is a time for that, but it's not on a day-to-day basis. 
And the sense of humor, I feel like, adds a sense of humanity to what we're doing. So, Sure. And I also notice, and you just said it a little while ago, too, and I've read a couple of interviews you've been in and stuff, where you don't say instructing, you say coaching. It's coaching. Yeah. I find that really interesting that having spent a little time with you now and understand that, that your command of the English language and, and how words are important to you, my wife's exactly the same way. I love yeah. to say irregardless to her all the time. No, okay. it's not that. Love it's it. regardless. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But if I want to get under her skin, I'll yeah. say, well, irregardless. Or when I correct her, I'll say, well, technically it's irregardless. But I love it. But I think that's interesting because what I've gathered from talking to you, reading about you and other people that have been in your classes is that it's not an instructor-student relationship. It's a brother-firefighter relationship. I'm just bringing you some information. I'm coaching a little bit. And I think that's one of the best ways. When I came in in the fire service, the instructors were up here. Yes. students were down here. It was a class of society. It was. It really was. So, And you talked about, you know, beating your chest and uh, early in the fire service, whenever you read bios or went to classes. And I've noticed the shift more towards stuff like you're doing. And I mean, we could have a whole conversation how I think it's a generational thing. When we got a newer generation in the fire service, they, like you, they see the job very seriously, but they can take a humorous approach to the job. I know I try to do that as much as I can. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a, there's an honesty. If you, if a person is disposed to prompt pomp and ceremony, then that is their natural voice. Right. But we make a lot of claims in the fire service that are completely fictional. They're completely fictional. And things like, well, we're paramilitary. Are we? We don't train like the military. We don't prepare like the military does. Well, we're tactical athletes. No, we're not. We're not practicing every single day. We're not critically evaluating what we're doing for success. You know, I use this example all the time. In the mid-80s, there was a group of guys out on the West Coast that started throwing the ball on second down. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's going to gimmick. Then they won four Super Bowls. And then people were studying the West Coast offense. Now it's just offense. Everybody plays it. Because if you don't, you don't win. So when I go to the, to use this as an example, when I go to the North Bend Fire Academy with my recruit class, which is our state facility, and we rented it out, and I hear that the state instructors will not teach flowing and moving, even though it's been scientifically vetted right. and experientially vetted, which is the other part of it. Before SCBA, every fire department had a method to flow and move. You physically had to, right? So we get up there and they're like, well, you know, and they're, they're, the, the, North, the Washington State Fire Academy right now does an attack called the dribble down attack, where they, they hit the pallets with a short burst of water, partially crack the bale and lob it on the pallet so they can relight it. Yeah, yeah. That happens all over the country. They're not unique. No, so no. Where they're not a professional, that's where that's basically saying, "Listen, you've got a rifle, but we're going to do bayonet charges because um, that's what we've done a hundred years ago or thirty years ago." And by the way, we're going to continue to play the same offense because not enough people. There isn't an aspect of winning and losing in the fire service. We don't we don't have the numbers nor the fatalities to to actually have a point of comparison. And because of that, we tell ourselves we're better than we are. We don't drill every day and we don't practice 
on a, on a regular basis with any sort of continuity that mimics either the military or professional sports. So when I go into drill schools or fire departments and I hear them touting these things and then they behave, every soldier that's ever served, the minute we say we're paramilitary and then we do some of the shit we do, they know that we're lying. Right. So it's about being who you are in the fire service. And I think if someone is, is more pomp and ceremony than me, that's awesome because we need that as well, but it's not me and I'm not going to lie about it. And I, you know, and I'm 20 years into the job and in about six months, I'm going to be 50. Right. So um, I think the problem with the generational gap is that not what we say it is and not what we're talking about. What we need to recognize is the difference in the generational gap is how they process information. They process it differently than you and I do. Right. And there is some things that they can help us with. What we can help them with is what a bibliography does and what work over duration, not work in spurts. They get their answer right away we were forced to do more to get the same answer. So there's a balancing of that. The other part of it is, and now this is the one I love. I've just, just, I just heard this. Oh, the new people, you know, how dare they ask me why? When my day, we just sat down and shut the fuck up. And you're like, well, how'd you like that? I hated those people. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so, uh, so you're, you're passing on your own dysfunction to, to the next generation. That sounds like dysfunction. To me. <laughs> the, the other part of it is, is that I think this is interesting. Um, I've heard that the, the modern generation doesn't have grit or doesn't have emotional hardiness. Yet I see senior firefighters throwing temper tantrums because a new person dared to ask them why who's in emotional control, right? You know, I mean, you want, you say that they need to be tougher, but you know that you can do whatever you want to them, but they can't do the same thing to you, which is, which is not effective. I think what we need to realize is that there's, there is a, there is a catch though. If a, scene, a firefighter asks another firefighter a question, and it's really a question. It's a sign of trust. Yes, exactly. It's a compliment. Yes. If it is a statement in the guise of a question, that's insulting. So I think that from what I've watched, the, the younger generation are not as comfortable with a difference in opinion. Because their social norm is who can scream the loudest on social media. You know, who's the loudest and who gets the most likes is the facts versus for us where that wasn't an option. And we became hopefully more comfortable with discussing the difference in opinion. And I think that that's a cultural thing. We have spent the last 30 or 50 years teaching people how to avoid difficult conversations. We need to teach them how to have them with dignity and respect. So because these younger folks don't have that skill set quite as much, sometimes, and these are general statements, of course, but sometimes they, instead of saying, Hey, Jake, I got a question. I got an opinion on this. Let me show you something. 
they ask a leading question. And the leading question is a guise for a statement. And to me, that's irritating. If you want to ask me to look at something you're doing, to get my opinion, just ask me that. Sure. Don't pose a question that tries to frame it in such a way that it's not quote unquote abrasive. It's all about manners and manners are universal and manners don't have anything to do with rank. They have nothing to do with age. They are the way that we are. My mother likes to say that manners are the oil that lubricates society at all levels. And the fire service often ignores manners and what's good for one person. Somehow time on the job translates to, to worth. Uh, Seniority and experience are two different animals. They're completely two different animals. And, and my experience has been the true senior firefighters never behaved in that way. That usually the bluster and bravado is to make people be quiet so that they don't pay attention to maybe how little skill that individual actually has. The people that I've found to be the best make statements of what they do and they share what they do and they're not degrading because somebody doesn't know, know it. And they always have time for questions. As long as questions are appropriate in timing and tone. And I, I mean, one of my senior Fire, I mean, I just talked to my, well, my dad and a, and a lieutenant that retired from Seattle named Meg Jones. She's retired and it's, it's, it's sad that she retired, but she's doing well. And Jeff Shoup, like I just had a fire in, a, in, a, in an environment that he saw more of than I did because, than I do because of our, our building differences. And I asked him a question. I'm like, Jeff, I got a question on this firefight. I did this. X dot, 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 dot. Is this how you would approach it? And he's like, yep, that's how I would have done it. Nice job. But early on, when I didn't know anything and he didn't know my name, but I was taking a class with him, he had the same amount of time that he did as his friend. And he approached me with the same tone then when I was a younger firefighter that clearly wasn't that well-educated and uh, was working in a place that he'd never heard of. He treats he treated me the same then as he did now, as he does now. And I mean, we're friends now, which is different. But uh, you know, the guy, the, the captain that bailed me out of that fire, he was pre SCBA, the definition of old school. Right. And and he always had time, and he would do the same things. He would practice basics. And if somebody was better at it than he was, regardless of the time on the job, he wanted to know what they were doing. And so we'd be out, you know, this is a senior captain out practicing hose movement and flow on water, even though that's not his job. Right. So in my experience, the, the, the true senior people always have the time for questions as long as they're appropriate in timing and tone. And they don't ever use their experience as the primary source of their, of, of information. They have the backstory. They can explain the context. And now all of that physics can then translate into experience and vice versa. 
right. versus someone that's purely experiential or someone that's purely theoretical. So I agree. I, 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 uh, I have a real, I, I feel like there's so much potential on in our industry, but often it gets derailed by personalities. One of the best things about the fire service I've always thought was tradition, but it's also the anchor that holds us back from moving forward. And we talked about generationally, you know, I came in the fire service like this, you know, I didn't say a damn word for a fucking year until you, know, yeah, yeah. you can't, you can't do that. And <clears throat> I am not at all trying to shamelessly plug an article I wrote uh, called the generational gap by Jake Barnes on firehouse.com and fires magazine. <laughs> but what, the reason I wrote that article is I was training six guys and they were all younger guys. And I was struggling to, cause I was coming from a position of this is how I came in the fire service. This is how you're going to learn it. And then one day it just clicked and it was that why question. They wanted to know why we did stuff. So the only reason I could come up with, with being upset about all those whys is my ego. So once I took me out of the equation and I That's saw right. them, it, it, it became one of the best classes I ever had because all I had to do was explain why we do, why we do things. And in doing so, they got a better understanding of the fire service, my department specifically, and I got a great education on how to teach different generations. Yeah. And you, you hit the nail on the head and this isn't new. I mean, Marcus Aurelius talks about it. When you can remove ego from the picture, you can see the picture more clearly. And why has always been, this is a why profession. So just because you and I came in to shut up and sit down, kid, doesn't mean it was right. And if it was, and what it does is it makes it so people don't want to ask questions. And because they don't want to ask questions, they just do what was done to them. And the fact that you were able to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's not clicking and making that, that adjustment in yourself I think that's a, that's a very good analogy of, of what is occurring. And um, yeah, it, it really just is a fact of ego is, is, is bad for ego is bad for an organization. It's good for an individual uh, sometimes, but it's bad for an organization. And, 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 in the sense that if I inject my own needs, emotional or physical needs into the mission, I'm, I'm muddying the mission, Right. you know, and it's tradition. I agree, but I, I look at tradition a little different. Tradition is not what we did. It's why we're doing it. It's a, and because of that, Tradition is a living organism. Tradition is always referred to as is a past tense thing. It's right now. How you're behaving with those newer folks is going to be the tradition that goes on from this point. So tradition is from this moment backwards. And if we only rely on the why do we do it just because, then we don't actually know. Or the worst, the worst phrase ever is it's we've always done it that way. Right. We've always done it that way. Your methodology, and this is one of the nozzle forward mission statements or, or not mission statement, but operational guidelines is everything is up to constant, continuous 
rigorous evaluation to ensure that it is still the best possible method. And that is a disposition of this training organization and nothing that I'm, because I've learned things in the last two years that are better than what I've been doing since the the eighties in my sport. Mm -hmm. And I adopt it right away because I'm, you've you've mentioned your sport. What sport is it? Uh, well, I played two sports, uh, but the one I'm refer- I played a uh, lacrosse mm-hmm. for about 20 years or so. But my main sport is I started in uh, judo in 1988, oh, wow. and I started jujitsu in '90, and I started freestyling wrestling in '93. So gr- all the grappling sports. Uh, but my the one that I'm the most versed in is 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 judo and jujitsu. Those are the ones I still actively practice, but yeah, I mean, you know, judo is an Olympic sport, so I was being coached. I mean, it's pajama. It's it's Greco-Roman freestyle. Well, now it's more Greco-Roman, but it's freestyle wrestling in pajamas with the ability to twist a guy's arm behind his back and make him say uncle. Uh, so that, yeah, that's that's it, you know, and it's a scientific sport. It's based on scientific study, and, and you know, you're constantly practicing basics all the time because all complexity is – is basics performed expertly in succession. There's, I mean, you also wrote an article too, or maybe it was an interview. I think you're being interviewed for being the keynote for FDIC a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And you talked about our occupation should be preparation. Yes. So you think, as, well, let me tell you what I think. I, I think we do not train enough. I'm a training officer and I'll tell you right now, I don't think we train enough. You know, I, and I see people, I've had people basically view training as an obstacle and not an opportunity. And when you get to those people training them, like you're in a really good position that you only go and train people that want to be trained with what you know. Right. Not always. I train in my own fire department. (laughs) Which leads me to my very next question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's it like for your department having to get training from you and something that you developed has gone haywire. I mean, everybody's doing this or using it to some degree. What's it like for you dealing with your department and your department dealing with you about this? Um, Early on, I think it was a little more fits and starts. Um, But the caveat is, is early on some of the movers and shakers in my fire department endorsed what I was doing publicly. Um, And part of it has been that uh, I don't stoop to the muck. I don't get into conflicts of personality. And even though at times people have said things to me that if it wasn't a professional setting, I would introduce them to the concrete and never let them see me get upset about it. I don't, I, I have been able to you know, for whatever reason, my personality, I can compartmentalize things. And so when they're making, you know, well, I don't know about this and that, all I do is state the fact. I I never comment on anything that's subjective. I only comment on those things that are objective. This is the way it is. Here's the numbers. The And so early on, I think there was some resistance. And there are people in my fire department that don't 
don't actively participate in what we do. But every new rookie for the last, I don't know, nine years has some degree of training in this, which means some, like the training captain that I'm working under right now, uh, I trained as a rookie. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, And so as we've been able to just prove our worth through actual fire ground and not just talk and chalkboard. The other thing is the approach to training for us training. And you mentioned this is an opportunity. It's never, it's never punitive. And if somebody's having a problem with something, we don't, we don't patronize. We, we, because our system is so, based upon an educational model, we can pull out that one musical phrase out of the song that that person is struggling with and isolate it and then reinsert it. And now they can play the whole song. Uh, The other one is that we just keep smiling and we just keep doing it. And we've got the right people behind us at all levels um, from the chiefs down and uh, it works. And that's the other one, right? I mean, somebody the other day, there was a group of people that were taking a class that were, that were naysayers and, mm-hmm. and I knew it and I'm okay with that. I love it when those guys come out because that means that they and I are actually more similar than different. Wait, so yeah. they're coming to your class. They're paying to come to your class as naysayers or yes, they're, they're trying not- to, I've been told I came, I mean, all the time, multiple times a year, I came to this class to prove it wrong. I was wrong. I I was wrong. And a lot of what they're trying to prove wrong is the disposition in the methods of people that have taken the class. There is, I mean, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but I wish that enthusiasm was a little more focused on the methodology of implementation rather than the individual skills so that they were telling people why they were doing it and what they're going to do, why, and then when, and then practice that in isolation, um, practice that skill set. They come back and, and sometimes because, of, you know, it usually comes from a certain age group that are all fired up because they were able to do things that they couldn't do before. Uh, and their, their method of spreading the message is is maybe less than ideal for getting people on your side. <laughs> Their enthusiasm is sometimes overwhelming. And, and that's something that we warn people about. Yeah, nevertheless, it happens. So they come out, they take the class and they go away. And we've never had anyone say, yeah, that wasn't worthwhile. We've had people say, yeah, I got more from this or less from this, of course. But for the most part, the naysayers, they may not like it. And they may not be good at it, but they can't argue with its effectiveness. So, and we had a recent group of naysayers do a class uh, and they, the chief that was there that was bringing them, had them do a drill before the class. And it took them about four minutes from parking brake to water in the room, took them about four minutes and about 46 seconds. And at the end of the class, they did the same evolution. And I think 
uh, well, it was under two. It was like 136. And they used 20% less oxygen. So wait a minute. A chief brought, I assume the chief was a naysayer, brought naysayers. No, they, he, was a, he was an advocate. Okay. So he brought and then did a drill before you even started? Yep. To help prove to them at the end of the game that it's going to work better. Yeah, it worked over three minutes better, and they used 30% less or 20% less oxygen. Wow. So, every, you know, and, and I think that that's and, – and their comment was, we knew what to do every moment. There was no method movement made that wasn't synced with everybody else. We knew what the language meant. We knew what the technique that came. We understood the environment in which we would apply that particular technique. And because they were in mental, there's so there's several things. One, that the mechanical advantage is 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 very much there, which means they work less hard. The other, right. they work less. The other one is that because they know what's coming, they know what this technique means in relationship to the space, that they can articulate the specific angles that exist, the three angles, the three types of stairs because they know the language, their brain isn't using as much energy to keep them in the moment. Chaos, perceived chaos, is one of the major causes of acute stress. Acute stress is caused by physical trauma and mental chaos. So the quicker that we can create algorithms that teach people a limited skill set to this goes with this, if not, then this. Mm -hmm. um, you, you are now coding form. The world isn't chaotic. It's, it's organized. We just don't understand the organization. So it's perceived chaos. Once we understand the organization of ourselves in relationship to this, this environment, our heart rate goes down. So the first evolution, they were trying to race to get it done, and their heart rates were above 150 beats a minute, which means they're in the, the slippery slope of fight or flight. Right. The second one, they were tired because they'd done a bunch of, they'd done 24 hours of work, but in the two days, but they were mentally in the moment and they knew what everything meant. And so there was, there was an organization to what they were doing in the environment that they were doing it in. So their heart rate was probably closer to 120 beats a minute, which means their lower heart rate means they use less air, which means they are more aware of the things going on because their brain isn't filtering out its perceived threats. You know, when you go in fight or flight, the sticker bushes are not the threat. It's the lion. Right. But the sticker bushes are a threat. It's just your brain decides what is and what isn't. So in an environment that you can't see, you can't hear, and you can't feel, what's your perceived environment? Well, if we don't teach people what this space means, what it looks like, what it feels like, and what to do if your lizard brain is starting to activate, right. and if it gets better, continue to go, and if not, don't go. We drill and drill and drill on how to get – Maybe, you know, a hose here, a ladder here, a truck here. But how much do we do to prepare for what that's going to do to the body and the mind once we get in there? That's right. And you have to, you have to understand it, and, but then you have to also put people in scenarios in training where they're successful with it. So, yeah, I wasn't implying that that's what he was saying as far as – but I know that there are people – 
there are programs out there that refer to stress inoculation. Right. It, it's stress management and, and how you stress. And I, I, the second program that I do is a, a program called drilling for function, which lays out this method, this culture, and this approach with biomechanics um, for any skill set that is going to operate in our realm. Um, but you, you, you know, you're stressing for success. You're stressing to get people used to what happens when an environment changes. And what that's supposed to do is reinforce the next thing in your physical algorithm. And then it, you move forward. You, uh, X happens. I quit doing A and go to B. It gets better. I go forward. It gets worse. I back up. And, and, and so that crossover between understanding it and then creating drills that force it. So we had a fire. Um, it it doesn't, we, we, there is, I just got this, uh, this information from a friend of mine who we taught a class a year ago. Um, this guy, is bring he brings his rig up to be used for the class and he just hangs out really good guy i offered him to take part he was like nah you know i'm a i'm a senior guy i've been around a while not that i don't want to learn it i'd rather watch it and let the young guys do it and i'm technically only here for my rig well he did this he had this he listened all weekend and he took part a little bit here and there and then i guess like a few months ago i just found this out and this isn't unique um he was in a fire where a bunch of bad stuff started to happen. And he told my, my pal, I, at that moment, when I went down to the ground and felt like this is where, this is where the end happened, I remembered something that Fields had said. And that anchored me. And I found what I was looking for, which was the nozzle. And I turned it on and I backed up and I called the mayday and I kept it off of me and made it tenable in my little space, which lowered my heart rate, which made me think about everything. And he's like, in the moment of truth, when I was feeling like I was going to die and the world was spinning around me, I, I got the, I remembered something that somebody said and I did it and it got better. And then I got, I regained control. When you look at the numbers, the, the actual data of what water can do, and how it could drop the ceiling temperatures, floor temperatures, hundreds and hundreds of degrees. Uh, that goes right along with what you're teaching, I guess. Yeah, and that's what the old people, the old timers did. They flowed and moved right. because they, they did fire attack and hydraulic ventilation at the same time. And that meant they could breathe. Everybody gets, everything gets better, you know? Yeah, that, that's one of those, we go back to a hypoxia what was the saying you said? Hypoxia makes cowards of everyone. Yeah, so yeah. I think that could fall into that category. But once time at the beginning, you don't open that nozzle until you're on top of the fire. And I remember people behind me when I was a new guy pushing me, and I'd, it'd be hot. I mean, really hot. And I'd want to, no, no, come on, let's see what you're made of. And I look back on it now, and how many chances did I have not to be here with you today? <laughs> you know, right, I mean, it could have bad. Let's see what you're made of. Yeah. How about we fight the fire and not prove to each other how tough we are. And what happens while you're seeing what you're made of the bedroom door that you just passed that you're melting underneath your gear opens up 
because that person was asleep. And unlike the fire in our mind where we're either doing a rescue or everyone's out, it's usually some gray space in there, right? I mean, some people are like, we go in all the time, no matter what. No, we go into spaces that we can get in and we work from the worst to the best. That's our job. Then other people are like, well, you don't know anyone's in there. Assume they are in there, right? So in people's mind, it's one or the other. There's either victims around every corner or there's no one in there because (laughs) it's not that. So now we're being tough going down a hallway, not flowing water. And it's so hot that you're thinking on the nozzle, I wish I wasn't on the nozzle. And a civilian opens their door and takes a step out into that space. So the mission of the fire service is to protect people, lives, and property. Being tough doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily correlate with those things. Hero is an interesting thing because the definition of the word means someone that, and, and I'm not the first to say this, Chief Croker said in the 1800s, the last thing you ever did brave, and this is a paraphrase, but the last brave thing you ever did was sign up for the job. From this point on, it's in the line of duty. The definition of hero is someone that exceeds the expectation of their lot. Right. So, we're, and, and I think that becomes, I actually think the hero aspect of the fire service is poison, mental poison. Because what happens is, is we hear it and we're successful. And all of a sudden, like, as I've traveled the country, it's surprising to me how many firefighters have this sense that they're part of King Arthur's court. Like, you're not sitting next to Lancelot. You know, it's this Arthurian myth image of we're noble, we're virtuous. By the way, everybody should cater to our least whims because of what we might have to do. And it it's like, that's poison because if you start to believe that, then you start to feel entitled. Yes. And I agree that if we define who we are and what we do, so something like a mission statement, we are firefighters. Firefighters are all hazards service. Our job is to protect life and property from catastrophic events. And one of the things I, I, I love about a couple of the Marine Corps documents is they define what a Marine is, what the virtues of a Marine are, what the Marine Corps does, what the virtues are. So what does this organization do and how are we going to use your talents? And they define the characteristics and the behavior of a Marine regardless of rank. They don't, degra- they don't break it down by rank structure. Right. Rank is your job. Your, your methodology is true no matter what your job is. And I think that would be a much more professional disposition. Firefighters I, I are part court night of the, they, they view themselves as part court night of the round table, but they also add in a little bit of a folklore hero. <laughs> and it's bad for us. And and with that being said, with what you said earlier, yeah, I think with the, some of the folks that have been around a while, but more likely the people that have been around a medium time. I have found that that, that five to nine year mark for a firefighter is a pretty telling point 
because I think in most of us, we were at the right age. There was an age component, but there was also a success component. And we started to shift from the new person to the intermediate person. And with that comes a degree of comfort um, that I think can be dangerous because it can lead to apathy and mediocrity. And that's why I think humble pie is good for everybody to eat at some point. Absolutely. And, but comfort easily slides into complacency. And I think that's, yeah, comfort is the enemy of growth. In fact. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, this is just cultural stuff that we, we have to be as individuals wary and, and be checking in with our own perspective and disposition every so often. Um, and we need to encourage an industry that sees that knows its place in society. And I think that's, um, that's a big deal. Recognize our mission statement. If it gets in the way of the mission and it's secondary. So, and, and this applies in everything. For example, I was talking to a friend of mine last night coming back from the fire Academy and he was, he was chatting with me about how it's going at the Academy. It's going very well. Um, but he was, we were talking, we got off to a, an aspect of the conversation. And, and my comment to him was my mission while at the training Academy is training new firefighters in anything, be it personal, professional, or organizational that gets in the way of that is of second importance. This is my mission. My mission is to train these folks to be good. And anything that's getting in the way of that, be it time frame and certain skills, all of those things, it is my job to push it whatever line needs to be pushed to ensure that the mission of training new firefighters is kept at the foremost. So when we leave the training division, we go into the companies, our mission is all service, all hazard service. That is our mission. And if anything gets in that way, it is of second importance. And until you start to prioritize those things, then and if everything has equal footing, that's where people get lost. Well, I've got to do these inspections, but, I've, but I also have to train the company. What's more important on a grand scheme? And if the grand scheme is being achieved, then what's more important today? Mm-hmm right? It's always about prioritization and it starts with a mission statement and many fire departments have a moral statement. That falls more in line with what we expect from our people, but our mission is dealing with the hazards and those lines get so blurred so often. And so that's, that comes back to one of my first points, which is we aren't what we say we are. We, are, we say we are, but we don't behave it. And that's, that's very different. We talk the talk, but we still walk the walk. Not always. Sometimes we far exceed. And I mean, this is what, we're ta- what you and I are talking about is the 10% of works. We're not talking about the 90% of, of good, right? right? So th- there is good. I'm not a deconstructionist or anything like that. <laughs> but, you know, I am in all hazards firefighter, which means I see the problem and I want to fix it. And I can focus on the good to balance it out so I don't get bitter. 
but I'm not going to spend any time patting myself on the back because there's more work to be done. So, yeah. Well, we're going to end right there. I like that idea. Uh, it's uh, the humble pie. You know, I think either we learn to have a little humility early on or the job will humiliate us, you know, and uh, I appreciate that. I want to, if you can hang on two seconds, uh, I want to tell you real quick, thank you for being on my podcast. It means a lot to me. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I could have talked to you for hours, which I want to talk to you about here in a second. So sure. th- thanks again, Brother Fields, and I'll, uh, I'll get a hold of you in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me.